Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today we're starting a new section in Revelation chapter 19, uh, which is basically the second half of the chapter. The first one uh, of chapter 19 was, uh, verses 1 through 6, was part of the thought process in chapter 18. Uh, under the fall of Babylon. So actually chapter 19, we're in our study. Uh, it starts in verse 7. Uh, and it's verse 7 through 10, we see the true bride is seen at last. It's talking about the marriage supper and all of that. Well, now we come to verse 11. Uh, and this section is called the tragic battle is stilled at last. And this is covered um, covering... Uh, verse 11 down through 21, through the end of the chapter. And again, much of this uh, that we're going to read about here is describing the second coming of Christ and uh, the events of Armageddon. Uh, it gives another point of view of Armageddon, just like chapter 16 had uh, some description of it. We're going to get a little more clarification here. Now, within this chapter... Um, or this section, I should say, within this section of verses 11 through 21, we're going to see that it's divided into uh, um, it's divided into two parts, and I can't remember uh, what the second part is. I have part of the notes, and I, and I kind of skipped right over them. I sure did. I can't remember what it was. Uh, the Lord's coming is described in verses 11 through 16. I know that. The Lord's coming is described. And where I get to the next point, I can't remember what it is. I guess I'll have to tell you when I get there. Okay, so we're, we're not going to get that far anyway. But uh, Within this section, the Lord's coming is described. We're going to see several things. First of all, uh, we'll see uh, uh, the appearance of heaven's king. Uh, the apparel of heaven's king, the armies accompanying heaven's king, the annihilation by heaven's king, the authority of heaven's king. So that's the breakdown of what's going to be covered here in this section, which is all about the second coming. And then verse 17 gets into more uh, events as it unfolds of the Battle of Armageddon. Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> I see it now. All right. The Lord's coming described verses 11 through 16. And then the Lord's conquest described in 17 through 21. See, that's why I write in my Bible. Because I can't keep up with these notes. That's why. All right. So let's get to it. And uh, we're starting a new section. So I'm going to read um, this, this first portion of this thought. Verse 11 through uh, 16. So you kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, we'll never get all this covered for sure. But. At least you know what we're talking about. All right, so verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so this is what John sees in the second coming of God, uh, or Christ. And so we're going to describe and go into detail what he's actually seeing there a little bit. Okay, all right, the first phrase, uh, in the, the appearance of heaven's king, we'll talk about that. That's covered in verse 11, uh, in the first two parts of verse 11, okay? First two parts of verse 11, we'll talk about it. Uh, the first part here, it says, And I saw heaven opened. Now, the remaining part of this chapter gives us a more detailed description of events that take place with the pouring out of the sixth and the seventh vials, especially the event commonly known as, quote-unquote, the Battle of Armageddon. Now, chapter 16 only tells us that the armies were gathered there, while chapter 19 gives a little more detail. Now, in Revelation, John has witnessed three things opened in heaven. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see, After this I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven. In chapter 11, and verse 19, we see, And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Now, here in this section, it tells us simply that heaven is opened. <laughs> and it kind of gives you the idea that it's like this rolling back of some major curtains or something, you know. It's a big opening. Now, Charles John Ellicott points out in his commentary that John sees heaven as opened, open E-D, not opening, open I-N-G, <laughs> as he did in chapter 4 and verse 1. A door opened in heaven. Now, here it's, it's heaven opened. Uh, now, this tells us that the events have already started. In other words, John's reacting to what he hears before he actually sees what's happening. It's not that he's looking and then the events take place. It's that he hears the events happening, and when he looks up, they're already in progress. Okay? So that's what it's telling us. All right. Now, it is erroneously believed by many scholars that this open door of heaven is associated with the destructive event which is described by Isaiah and Peter. In Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 2, it says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth. The fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And then the scripture in Peter is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, we must remember that the phrase day of the Lord covers the following timeline of events. It starts with the rapture of the church, 
It involves the seven-year tribulation period on earth and the Bema seat judgment in heaven of the raptured saints. Uh, it involves the bride church and Christ uh, when they are wed. It involves Christ coming to earth to establish his kingdom, the events at Armageddon, the defeat of the false prophet and Antichrist who were sent to the lake of fire, uh, Satan tied up in the bottomless pit, the millennial reign, the release of Satan and the rebellion following that, uh, Satan's final confinement in the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the earth and heavens. All of that is covered in the phrase day of the Lord. Now, note that there are generally four views of the rapture of the church. Uh, there is the partial rapture which states that only those true believers who are watching and waiting will be taken while the rest must endure the tribulation. Uh, the second view is mid-tribulation. This is the thought that the church will be raptured out between the tribulation, in other words, the first three and a half years, and the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. Now, the rapture of the two witnesses in chapter 11 is symbolic of this event, as they quote. Uh, the third view is post-tribulation. I'm kind of jumping around. There's a partial rapture view. There's a pre-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, and a post-tribulation. I'm, I'm trying to get to them. I believe in the pre-tribulation, but I'm covering the others before I get to that. Uh, post-tribulation. The entire church will be raptured out at the very end of the tribulation period. Now, the argument is that Christ said the church would have to go through tribulations and trials before ascending to heaven. Okay? Well, all right. Uh, now, the pre-tribulation. Now, this thought is that the entire church will be raptured out before any of the tribulation period begins. And I personally believe this is the correct and the biblical view based on the events as we know them in chapter 4. And I know many people argue, well, the word rapture is never even used in the Bible. Well, you know what? Um, there's many words not used in the Bible. Uh, how about Trinity? That's not where it to be found in the Bible. But yet, if you believe in God, and you believe in the Son, and you believe in the Holy Spirit, and they are three in one, you believe in the Trinity. And so what you're saying is, well, because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, uh, that you can't believe in that and you can't believe in the rapture. It's hogwash. The thought is there. The idea and the concept is there. So just because a word not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. What about car? You really believe in a car? It's not mentioned in the Bible. Does that mean it's not true? Who okay. <laughs> Oxygen. It's not a word used in the Bible. <laughs> okay, you believe in that? Well, you can't use it anymore. You don't believe in it. It's not in the Bible. All right. Now, the intricate description of the event uh, of this rapture that takes place here shows how it differs from the rapture of the church. So there's a rapture here, and there's a rapture of the church. Now, at the rapture, Christ meets the church in the air. Now here, Christ comes with the church all the way to earth. At the rapture in chapter 4, there is no judgment. At this rapture, it is all judgment. Um, the rapture of chapter 4 happens in the twinkling of an eye. Now in this rapture, uh, it says that the sun is darkened, the moon goes out, the stars fall, there's smoke, there's lightning, and it's followed by a blinding glory as he appears. 
So, taking this into mind, it is evidently clear that this is not a description of any rapture of any kind. Okay? So, there's the rapture and then there's the events that happen here. It, it, this is not the rapture. Okay? It's not the rapture. I, I kind of threw the word rapture in there, but I'm sorry. It's kind of got tongue-tied there. Okay. Uh, let's look at the next phrase here. It says, and behold, a white horse. Now, verses 11 through 16 contains one of the most graphic pictures of the second coming of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. Now, white, as the color of a horse, is symbolic of triumph in battle. The introduction of this white horse follows the pattern of a Roman triumphal procession. I'll get the word out. Uh, Merrill C. Tinney, uh, in his book, he, he describes this, and I quote, When a general returned from a successful campaign, he and his legions were granted the right to parade up the Via Sacra, the main street of Rome that led from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill. Mounted on a white horse, the general rode at the head of his troops followed by the wagon loads of booty that he had taken from the conquered nation and by the chained captives that were to be executed or sold in the slave markets of the city. The chief captives, or rebels, were remanded to the Mamertine prison where they were usually executed while sacrifices of thanksgiving were offered in the temple. Now, this white horse is an exact contrast to the white horse mentioned back in chapter 6 and verse 2, where it tells us, and I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now here in chapter, or there in chapter 6, I guess I'll use that, uh, is describing the arrival of the Antichrist. John Gill, in his commentary, stated that he believed this white horse is a symbolic representation of the gospel, where in chapter 6 it would be the apostate versions used by the Antichrist, while here is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This cannot be true, as verse 13 describes the Lord himself as called the Word of God. Not the horse, but he himself is called the Word of God. And verse 15 tells us he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now John Gill is describing the Word of God as an object used by Jesus Christ, whereas John in the Gospel, and our passage here, describes the Word of God as being Christ himself. Okay? So there's a little bit difference there. You got to be careful how you kind of throw symbology things out there. All right, now note, in the two times Jesus enters Jerusalem, uh, the contrast of the donkey with this white horse. Remember the first time he enters Jerusalem was on the back of a donkey. Now, a donkey uh, <clears throat> is used for peace while a horse is used for war. Jesus came meekly and lowly upon his first arrival into Jerusalem, but not so this time, as he arrives with the sword in his mouth. <laughs> a little bit different picture there. Uh, now, while a white horse was usually reserved for the parades after the fact, here Christ arrives on the scene with the symbology 
that the war was already over. And with Christ riding this white horse, the symbology is that of his justice and holiness and also victory and triumph. Okay? All right. So that's our first thought there. Let's look at the second one here. The apparel of heaven's king. The first part was the appearance. Now let's look at the apparel. And this is the rest of verse 11 down through verse 13. And I'm not going to re repeat the phrase as it's all... I just we, we just read it, so we're just going to try and get through as many notes as we can. How about that? All right, next phrase here in, in verse 11. It says, And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Now here John is not calling him by his name, but rather by his attributes. So let's look at him and see what, we're, what he's trying to tell us. First of all, there's faithful. And this in the Greek is the word pistos. Pistos. And it means object trustworthy, absolutely to be trusted. And then there's the word true. And that in the Greek is the word alethinos. Alethinos. It means truthful. And it also carries with it two meanings to this. First, true in the sense that Jesus Christ is the one who brings the truth and who never at any time has any falsehood in anything he says. Second, it also means genuine as opposed to that which is unreal. In Jesus Christ, we meet reality. Uh, so, here in this phrase, he is called faithful and true. Uh, he is faithful in performing all he promises and true in executing all his threatenings. Now, the picture here is of a warrior bridegroom in combination of marriage, joy, and martial triumph described in Psalms 45. And that's 17 verses long. We'll read it so you don't have to. Psalms 45 says, My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre 
shall be their greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift, even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions, that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. So there's a big, <laughs> probably more scripture than I've read in a while. How about you? Okay, next phrase, and in righteousness, in righteousness. Now this phrase bears witness to the correct statement above that faithful and true are characteristics of Jesus Christ. Okay, and then the next phrase here, he doth judge and make war. He doth judge and make war. Now within this little six word phrase, we are given a great revelation of what is specifically taking place at this very moment. This is not a description of the final judgment at the great white throne because we are told in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 that there will be no fight, no war, no excuse. What is taking place here is the fulfillment of God's promise when the martyred saints asked and received their answer in Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. And they said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So, the point we're at here is where this little season is over. This is the point where Christ sets out to avenge that blood of those who were killed and martyred for their testimony. Note the sequence of order here. Now, in chapter 18, we have the overthrow of the harlot. Here in chapter 19, we have the overthrow of the beast, the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet. And then following in chapter 20, we will see the overthrow of Satan himself. James Burton Kaufman in his commentary, he said, and I quote, These three, the dragon, which is Satan, the sea beast, which is the Antichrist, and the harlot, are the three great enemies of Christianity depicted in Revelation. Their destruction in these three chapters occurs in exactly the reverse order of their appearance, in the prophecy, beginning in Revelation 12.1. And despite their overthrow being related in separate chapters and separate recap, recap, recapitulations, what a word, recapitulations, hmm. all three go down together. They are all three destroyed simultaneously in the final judgment and should or shall continue alive and active until the very last day of time. So, I even thought this before I even wrote it. And so, so I'm asking you, uh, 
the question is, why doesn't Christ just drop the hammer? I mean, really, just end it all. Instead of having to deal with Edom, then the Assyrian, and the Northern Coalition, then the gathered armies at Armageddon, and then after the millennial reign, he has to deal with uh, Satan and the rebellion for the final time. You know, in, in, in fact, most people actually think Revelation is about God swooping down at Armageddon and doing all of this at one time. But the Bible, especially the Old Testament, records a very specific order of events that takes place in his second coming, or what's called his advent. Uh, now, each and every one of the specific parts of judgment has a reason. But more specifically, it has a righteous result as well. Now, first off, we read that he destroys Edom. And I'm not going to even take the time to read all this because it's just such a large amount of scripture to read that it take all of our time. But we'll note that, first of all, he destroys Edom. And if you want to read it later, it's in Isaiah chapter 34 that it discusses this in detail. Now, Edom... Why does he deal with Edom first? Edom was the enemy of Old Testament Israel. Now here, I mean, if you want to find a real battle of Armageddon, this is the real battle of Armageddon right here. Uh, when you read that in Isaiah 34, uh, yeah, that's the real battle. Okay, second, uh, he deals uh, with the Assyrian. He doesn't deal with him, he destroys him. <laughs> he destroys the Assyrian, uh, or by the name of Gog, and his armies from the north. The armies from the north. This is covered in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Now this is the enemy of present day Israel. So you've got Edom, who was the enemy of Old Testament Israel. Now we have the Assyrian, or the Gog, and the army from the north, who's the enemy of present day Israel. Now, third, in the location of Armageddon, not the battle of Armageddon, notice I said that, the location of Armageddon, it says that Jesus takes the beast and the false prophet. Uh, if you read Revelation 19, verse 20, there at the beginning, it says, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet. It's like Christ just snatches them up by the collar, and their feet are still running, but they ain't touching no ground. That's kind of what you get the picture of. Uh so, uh, going back to what we were talking about, this thought here, uh, <clears throat> the location of Armageddon, Jesus takes the beast and the false prophet and throws them in the lake of fire. Then he destroys the beast's gathered army of the world. That's uh, talked about in Revelation 14, Revelation 16, and Revelation 19. Now, this is the enemy of the church. So again, running down the list, Edom, the enemy of Old Testament Israel, the Assyrian, the Gog, or Gog, and his armies from the north. This is the enemy of present day Israel. Third, the beast and the false prophet. This is the enemy of the church. And then finally, fourth, uh, he defeats Satan and casts him into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. This is the enemy of Christ himself. So that's why all this takes place. Now you may ask how the Lord would be able to judge and make war. Uh, the, three reasons. One is because he is the who. Who is the faithful and true. The how is the righteousness. And the what 
is the judge and make war. So he is the who, the how, and the what. He's got all the reasons covered. Now, Charles John Ellicott, in his commentary, he said, and I quote, The book of Revelation has shown us war, conflict, confusion, the passions of men surging against one another and dashing like vain waves against God's immutable laws. The world history is written in blood. We blame men for these cruel and desolating wars. But another question rises imperiously. Why does an all-good ruler allow these heartbreaking scenes? If earth's groans pain and trouble us, do they not grieve him? Where is he that he permits all this? The answer is, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The worked-out history of the world will make this plain. The righteousness of God is being revealed. All will see it one day. But now the just must live by faith in him who is faithful and true and who preserves the gem of all divine life in the history of the world. End quote. Now, William Barclay, in his commentary on Revelation of this same section here, he says, and I quote, uh, <clears throat> John finds his picture in the prophetic words of the Old Testament, where it is said of the chosen king of God, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Uh, that's Isaiah eleven four. John's age knew all about the perversion of justice. No one could expect justice from a capricious heathen tyrant. In Asia Minor, even the tribunal of the proconsul was subject to bribery and maladministration. Wars were matters of ambition and tyranny and oppression rather than of justice. But when the conquering king comes, Christ, his power will be exercised in justice. Okay, so the next phrase, his eyes were as a flame of fire. I'm trying to think if I really, yeah, we'll cover that. Now, this is the beginning of verse 12. It says, his, aim, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, this phrase reminds us how John first saw him in the beginning of this book. Revelation chapter 1, 14 through 15 says, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like in the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And then the next chapter, Revelation 2, verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now the picture here is that his eyes are gloriously bright and piercing which is symbolic of his omniscience. Omniscience means having infinite knowledge of all. Uh, it's symbolic of his righteous judgment upon sin. And it's also symbolic of his quick-sightedness in judgment, as well as being an intelligent warrior. In the siege of Jerusalem, uh, Rabshakeh, King Sennacherib's field commander, chides Hezekiah with these words in 2 Kings 18.20. Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? 
Uh, poor Rob Shaka, he doesn't know what he's saying, does he? Who, you say you have counsel and strength for the war. Now, who I'm asking, who do you trust that thou rebel against me? <laughs> he's about to find out. I'm going to tell you that, true and short. All right, so these eyes are also uh, <clears throat> symbolic of his clarity and penetration. Excuse me. Uh, the ability to look into and discover the secret machinations, schemes, and devices of his enemies against his people, as well as his exercise of it in favor of them. Uh, not only does he see what is going on, uh, he is in control of what is going on. And that makes quite a bit of a difference there. Not only can he see it, but he can control it. Uh, Hebrews 4.13 tells us, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, the fierceness of his anger against the enemies of his people, the eyes of his glory being provoked by their cruelty and wickedness, and likewise the suddenness of their destruction and the inevitableness of it. So we see where these eyes just have quite a bit going on here, don't they? All right, Robert Neighbor, uh, in his commentary, he says, he knows all things. There is nothing hidden or covered to him with whom the world has to do. He can be faithful and true in his judgments as he wars because his eyes are as a flame of fire. We have read that our God is a consuming fire in Deuteronomy 4.24 and again in Hebrews 12.29. We now read that his eyes are a fire. Such knowledge is too wonderful to us. He knows all things, every thought, every word, every impulse. He knows the very imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. End quote. And I've actually got a note around here somewhere. I'm going to look into that very thing where he says he knows the very imaginations of the thoughts of our heart. Now, you know as well as I do, we all have thoughts deep down in our hearts and that sort of thing, right? But the very phrase, imaginations of the thoughts of the heart, that, that carries a deeper meaning to it there. So I've got that set aside to study that sometime, find out what that is. And we know what, again, you get it? There's thoughts of the heart, you know, our deepest, darkest inner thoughts. This is the imagine, the he knows the very imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. So it has more to it than that. Anyway, that's a little mini sermon there for you. Okay. Uh, now, this next phrase, uh, I think is where I'm going to, I guess we could go on, but it's quite a big section here on these crowns. You know what? Let's just let you, yeah. we'll just stop there because really these crowns, um, it gets into a lot of detail here. Uh, and what's going on? <laughs> okay. All right, so we'll stop there. Uh, and again, I hope you enjoy just what we were able to cover here. I guess basically verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. And we'll get on in this next thought. And on his head were many crowns. Um, 
So uh, again, I ask you, uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, pray for me. Uh, pray for each other. Pray for your local church. Pray for your pastor of your church. Lord, lift him up. I'll give you the words that we need. Uh, also, um, pray for our country, as we've said in the past. And I hope you have a great day. And of course, if you're listening in the evening, I hope you have a great day tomorrow. <laughs> okay? All right. Again, thank you for listening, and God bless you.